Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Keely Shaw. Keely is a paracyclist. She won the bronze medal in Tokyo 2020 on the track. And she's also a PhD student. So it means that she's balancing a lot of balls in the air and she'll probably tell us a little bit about that when we get through. So welcome to the podcast, Keely. Thanks so much. I'm super excited to be here. Well, I'm glad that we've managed to snabble you in between World Cups as well. So I know timing's pretty tight. So Keely, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you got into paracycling? Yeah, absolutely. So I am, again, a paracyclist. I do both track and road cycling. So if anybody, any physiologists or researchers out there know that I'm essentially a dual sport athlete, track cycling and road cycling have quite different demands. There's definitely some crossover, but that is my sporting background. Um, I actually didn't get into cycling, though, until I was probably around 21 or 22. Growing up, I played every sport imaginable in my super small town in Canada. I -hmm. played hockey, volleyball, badminton. Um, I raced my dirt bike. I dabbled in basketball. I dabbled in football, a little bit of everything. But ice hockey really had my heart. It had kind of always been my dream to go to the Winter Olympics to play ice hockey. I had this really Mm -hmm. nice roadmap mapped out in my mind, playing all the high levels, kind of growing up through the system, play university hockey, on my way to Olympic hockey. But when I was 15, I fell off my horse and I broke a blood vessel in my brain and that paralyzed the left side of my body. I went through months and months of physical rehab, occupational therapy, physical therapy, exercise therapy, the whole thing. And I was able to get quite a lot of the function back, but I do still have quite a marked deficit on the left side of my body. So I am what we would call a spastic hemiplegia which means everything on the left side of my body, right from the tip of my head down to the bottom of my toes, the left side of my body just doesn't work quite right. I get spastic, so my body might move without me telling it to, essentially. I have decreased power output, coordination, strength, all of the things that you need to do physical activity and sports on that left side. And I kind of thought my dreams of high-level sport were over, after my injury but at one time in my undergrad degree at the university I was exercising in the gym and a classmate came up to me Erica Gavel she played wheelchair basketball and she said you know I've kind of heard your story about your injury I've seen how you move I think you could definitely be classifiable for parasport if that's something that you would like so I went with her to see her sports scientist um, just a local physical therapist here in Saskatoon Bruce Craven And he put me on the treadmill, watched me walk, watched me do a few different things. And he said, you're definitely classifiable, pick a sport. And at this point, Mm. it was December in Saskatchewan, which means it was very, very cold. There's a lot of snow. So I decided I would try cross-country skiing. Just right season, I heard we had a good coach. And I was very bad. And it was very cold and I was very slow. It was very hard. So that was a very short (laughs) year on my end. But then I'd also heard we had a cycling coach who had some experience in paracycling. So I thought that might be a good place to try. I already had a very basic, very cheap steel frame bike from one of the warehouses in the city, just a big box store. So I thought I have the base equipment I need to get going. Maybe this is something I'll do. 
So I started being a little bit more deliberate with my biking, where I was going, how long I was going. And then when I finished my undergrad degree in 2016, I bought myself an actual good carbon race bike as a graduation present to myself. Hmm. From there, I kind of continued to train, continued to build my strength and my fitness on the bike. And in 2017, I entered my very first race and fell in love with the sport immediately. It was kind of, it mm. filled that hole in my heart that hockey had left when I could no longer play it at the same level I had. So I loved the brute physicality of the sport. I loved the camaraderie. I loved all the people. And as soon as I got yeah. home from that race, I went on the Canadian Paralympic Committee's website and found every single email address that they had listed on that site. Cold call <laughs> that I have a brain injury and I like to bike. Where do I go from here? So I was put in contact with Cycling Canada and their development coach. We exchanged some emails. He invited me out to a training camp. And the rest is kind of history. I did my first world championships in 2018. I was fifth place in the individual pursuit, three seconds off the podium. Mm -hmm. I hit the podium in my very first ever World Cup on the road with a silver medal in Holland. 2019, Mm -hmm. I won my first world championships medal on the track again in the individual pursuit with a silver medal. And in Tokyo, I was fortunate enough to win Canada's first medal once again on the track. The track has kind of been my focus in the individual pursuit. I was, I still did quite well considering in the road events in Tokyo, we hadn't trained at all for the road events. We put all of our eggs into the individual pursuit basket but I still ended up mm-hmm. fourth in the time trial. So right. that podium was yeah. in reach. But as I told my coach, fourth is the loneliest position. <laughs> it is. It is. I know a lot of athletes who've been stuck in that fourth position for a little while before they were able to break through. It's It can be very frustrating. But, you know, that was a challenging course in Tokyo. So having focused on the track, I think, you know, being able to 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 do fourth in the time trial was was a pretty good effort yeah thank honestly my I went into that time trial with no performance expectations per se my I had two main Mm -hmm. goals and number one was to have as much fun as possible on the bike my time trial (laughs) to ride and to leave every ounce of my soul on that course so that anybody who beat me did it because they had better fitness than me on that day and not because they tried harder and what I've learned is that when I have fun I go fast Yeah, that's a good combination. And so what's your classification in cycling? I am a C4. So for anybody who doesn't know, Mm -hmm. in cycling, we classified first based on what type of bike we um, ride, whether that's a hand cycle, a tricycle, a tandem, or an adapted upright bike. So the C class is for the adapted bikes. These look very similar to what an able-bodied individual might ride. And then within each of those Mm -hmm. classifications, there are numerical subclassifications. So in the C class, we have C1 to C5, C1 being individuals with the least amount of physical function, and C5 being those with the most amount of physical function. I kind of tend to sit on the cusp of a high-functioning C3 or a low-functioning C4. I am right now a C4. We've been toying with the idea of potentially looking into getting classified again just because there has been a little bit of a decrease in my function and an increase in the amount of spasticity I get in the last year. But for the time being, mm-hmm. I am a women's C4 rider. Mm-hmm. And do you have any adaptations to your bike? Yeah, so my bike, essentially everything runs off the right-hand side of the bike. So on a typical bike, mm-hmm. you would have shifters and brakes on both sides. 
I have one brake lever on the right side of my handlebars that runs both front and rear brakes. And then all of the shifting also runs off the right side. So I've kind of got the rear derailleur gearing is in the normal spot where it would be on any other bike. And then I've got like a satellite shifting mm -hmm. box that I can work with my right thumb. So my left hand really just has to hold on. Yep. Your right hand is doing an awful lot of work. My right hand's doing a whole lot of work. Yeah. But that's, that's okay. It takes a lot less brain power for my right hand to do something than yep. attempting to have my left hand do something. And so can you take race feeds, for example, in a road race? Are you able to handle a race feed in terms of someone handing you a new bottle or anything from the side? Or do you have to take, take everything that you need on the bike with you? I cannot feed. So both hands have to stay solidly on the bike for me. Otherwise, I will likely run into somebody. So everything has mm. to come with me. And I also, because I can't really take my hands off the bars, all I have a camelback that I use during my race because I can't reach down and get a bottle. So mm -hmm. when I'm racing, the only nutrition and calories I can take is in the form of mix in my water. So yep. kind of as much as I can take water-wise is about the limit of what I can take food-wise. And even with that camelback, I have to feed when I'm at the back of the pack just because that split mm -hmm. second of taking my hands off the bars to put the straw in my mouth just does cause enough of a wobble that in a tight pack, I wouldn't want yep. to put myself or anybody else at risk. Yep. Mm. Okay. And so can you tell us a little bit about what your training looks like? It, it give us maybe a typical week, maybe not in peak season, but sort of in the middle of season of, of prep. Yeah. So what my weeks look like are a little bit different, whether we are talking about whether we're prepping for road season or whether we're pre prepping for track season, just because again, they mm -hmm. are rather different sports, but by and large, I'll train anywhere from 12 to about 15 hours a week in my daily training environment at home. Usually I will do some sort of intervals twice a week. If it's road season, they might be longer intervals and a low, little bit lower intensity as opposed to track season where they will be shorter intervals but much higher intensity. I will lift weights typically twice per week in um, road season and three times per week in track season. And on weight days, that's always a double day. So I'll start out with weights in the morning and I'll then go out for some sort of recovery ride in the afternoon, usually anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. And then I have my typical kind of prehab recovery type practices of foam rolling, um, stretching, using the Normatec. Mm -hmm. Great. And do you have a velodrome where you live? I most certainly do not. So the closest velodromes to me are about six hours away in both Edmonton and Calgary. Mm. Both of those are outdoor velodromes. So the crossover between riding an outdoor velodrome and an indoor velodrome are very, very different. I have done most of my track training at this point in Milton, Ontario. They've got the beautiful, essentially brand new facility that mm. was built for the 2015 Pan Am Games. So we did a lot of training out there, which for me is a flight. So it is quite a lot going into Tokyo that year before Tokyo. It, that was kind of my second home. 10 days out of every month, I was in Milton to train. Since then, a new velodrome has gone up in Bromont, Quebec, which is no closer. It's actually a little bit farther away from me. But that's where my coach lives. So we've been going out to Bromont about once a month to be able to train on the track. So there's definitely a lot of traveling that's involved. 
because as much as I can train the physical side of things, kind of no matter where I am, the technical and the tactical side of riding a track just takes that. You can only do it on a track, especially when you think of the differences in the bike, given that there's no brakes, there's no coasting on a track bike. You've only got one gear. So it is a very specific skill. Yeah, and you've also got the banking that you need to be able to manage and the, the turns at each you know, at each end. Yeah, yeah. so there, there's a lot of things yeah. going on that, again, you can't do on the trainer or on the open roads. Mm. And what about your nutrition? How do you put your nutrition around your training to support that? Like what a typical day's food intake? Yeah, so my I am very much a creature of habit when it comes to my food. I do like a lot of variety just so I don't get that food boredom, but the, a lot of my meals look very similar. And how my meals mm-hmm. or my dietary intake might be structured is, again, going to differ between track and road season. Fuel for the work required and the work is just different between those two. Typically, road season yeah. is a little bit higher in carbohydrates. Track season is a little bit higher in protein just to support the power output. But I will typically, I get up pretty early, so I'll have a breakfast. My breakfast almost every day is oatmeal and berries. It's something that's easy. If I'm going out training relatively early in the morning, I can make an overnight oat so I don't need to actually cook. It sits easy in my gut. And I also find that when we travel, it's either I can take it with me or it's quite common to find at different places around the world. Mm -hmm. So I can just keep that little bit of consistency. I'll oftentimes train mid after somewhere between mid morning and mid afternoon so if i'm training mid morning i'll have lunch kind of immediately after my training if i'm training mid afternoon i'll have a little bit of an earlier lunch so i have time to digest before going out training and then having a snack mm-hmm. as soon as i get back and then for suppers i don't follow a vegetarian diet per se but i do tend to eat more plant based meals mostly because I have a really hard time hitting my carbohydrate intake if I don't have plant-based proteins Mm -hmm. as my primary protein source. And um, a lot of my research area in my PhD has been around plant-based diets. So a little bit of practicing what I preach as I learn some of the benefits, both from a performance and a health standpoint, I work that into my life. And I just have, I enjoy, I have a lot of fun cooking different plant-based meals and seeing what kind of foods I can combine, what sort of flavor profiles that's going to give me. Mm. And so with your lunch, is that a lighter meal of the day? Like do you tend to have a hot lunch or is it more a lighter sort of salad sandwichy type of meal? I would say most of my meals would look smaller relative to the average individual just because I eat a lot of times throughout the day. So instead of having kind of Mm. three main meals and then two snacks, I kind of have five or six meals of approximately the same size. So I tend to eat smaller amounts more often just because I I feel heavy. I don't like feeling heavy whether I'm training or I'm done training or I'm working. I don't like that feeling. So I find that by yeah. eating smaller meals more often throughout the day, it just helps me to kind of stride that line between I'm not hungry, but I'm not also full. Yeah. And what are some of your favorite snacks that you like to have? I so my kind of de-stressor and my creative outlet I love to bake so I will Mm -hmm. usually have some sort of baking around and I like to bake a lot with pulses just to see what I can do so I'll make like peanut butter cookies out of chickpeas and I'll have that for Mm -hmm. a snack or black bean brownies I really like 
smoothies. I like yogurt with granola. So I have a, you know, a lot of different options just again, to kind of try to keep the food boredom at bay. Cause when you're an endurance athlete, it kind of feels like you're always eating. So to keep mm-hmm. some sort of excitement in the food that we're eating, it might even just be leftovers, depending on how busy I am, whether I just need to grab something and go, or if I actually have time to make toast with peanut butter and banana on it or what have you. A lot of my snacks would look like breakfast just because I breakfast foods are my favorite foods. <laughs> uh, I'm with you on that one. Do you, Have you had any nutrition challenges that you've had to face? Like, you know, have you had any issues with the iron levels, vitamin D, with your gut, anything like that? Yeah, so I, um, I've definitely had issues with my iron just I two weeks before my very first ever cycling Canada camp I couldn't figure out why I was so exhausted all the time and sure enough my iron was really low so that's something that we monitor quite closely I probably get my blood work done every six to eight weeks we've been Mm. me and my dietitian have been pretty successful and getting it back where it needs to be but we still manage it my biggest issue from a dietary perspective is actually that I'm celiac so this last trip to Italy was uh, very much a challenge. We, me and my coach were joking mm-hmm. that perhaps all the celiacs in Italy died out a while ago. Um, there's just not as much variety, <laughs> at least where we were staying and a little bit of a language barrier between us and the hotel. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, I, I never leave anything to chance. So I always have lots of options that I bring with me. We have an incredible team that's very supportive. So they'll, we, our team manager might go out and buy gluten-free crackers or oatmeal or whatever might be that I need in order to hit my dietary goals. So I would say the celiac more has been one of the bigger problems because again, as a endurance athlete, that requires a lot of carbohydrates and celiac means a large proportion of the carbohydrates are off limits. It's definitely gotten better and recently so- as there's more gluten-free options, but again, even when you're at different places around the world and the ingredient list is not in English or there is that language barrier, it does get too challenging. And when were you diagnosed with celiac disease? Were you quite young? I was grade 12, so I would have been 17. That was 2011, Mm. so it's been some time. But I, I definitely had a lot of symptoms before that. So when I actually started being symptomatic, I don't necessarily, I can't remember exactly, but I know it was at least two to three years before I was actually formally diagnosed. Mm. And would that have coincided around the time that you had your accident? That was about three. It actually probably the timeline was because I got hurt when I was 15 in 2009 and I was diagnosed mm. in 2011. So yeah, it definitely mm. now that you say that it does kind of coincide. Mm. Interesting. And what about monitoring yourself in terms of how do you, what sort of tools do you use to look at how your body's responding to training, whether you've recovered sufficiently? Like, do you have any specific tools that you use to monitor how your body's adapting to the training load and, and when to modify that training load if you need to? Yeah, so we have a variety of both objective and subjective tools that we use on the team. So I take my heart rate every single morning. And from there, we also get heart rate Mm -hmm. variability that the physiologist can take and interpret, send to the coach. We have our subjective questionnaires that we do every morning. 
And those are kind of the things I do for the team. But then even myself, I try to very much take inventory of how I'm feeling on any given day. And with that, just communicating with my coach. If I if a workout feels a lot harder, I'll put a little note in the workout file that says, I don't know what's going on, but I feel like death. Or well, mm. I might text them and say, what was the intent with this plan? What, should I have been able to hit this power output? Because I could not. So really just mm. kind of how a workout feels relative to how I think it should feel or how it's felt in the past. I find that if I'm not recovering, it messes with my sleep schedule right away. So if not yeah. sleeping, that's something to consider, I guess, and something that it's a flag that says we need to readjust just generally yeah. how my body feels. If I'm not recovering, I tend to get more spastic. I tend to get more mm, symptoms. Gonna, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask whether you get more spasticity when you're like, when you're not, whether that's an, an indicator of you being quite fatigued or actually being on the edge. Yeah, it definitely is. And it's something that I've noticed a lot more in probably the last about year, year and a half. And maybe that just means that mm -hmm. we've been kind of striding that line of the amount I can tolerate. But definitely yep. I get more spastic and I my cognitive processing slows down. I get less coordinated. Mm -hmm. There's a variety of different things in my body that mm -hmm. usually warrants a email or a text or a call to my coach saying, okay, here's what I feel. And where where are we at in the training plan? And is there a chance that I could take two or three easier days? And my coach is super receptive and always considers us as humans first yeah. and athletes second. So he's really great mm -hmm. to help ma manage and monitor that. Mm. And how much does your work with your master's which you've completed and it had a really interesting topic so we'll talk about that in a sec and your PhD like they're not light things to add on to your overall load are they especially if you're running a, a study or you've got a deadline to meet in terms of having written a certain amount of your project work how, how do you balance all of that in there as well so I actually don't know what it's like to do grad school or cycling independently I think I signed my contract <laughs> the month after I started my master's degree so it's just kind of been what I've mm. always done and I'm very fortunate on both sides both the academic and the athletic that I have a very supportive team so when I I was zooming in for stats class before zooming in for school was cool because I was at a training camp in Ontario or I might mm. be zooming in to give some sort of presentation for a class while I'm running into the velodrome. It's <laughs> you kind of you make it work with what you have zooming in for classes or presentations from various airports around the world. But I kind yeah. of find that these are really they're very complementary aspects of my life. We all know that we shouldn't just sit at our computer and work for 10 to 12 hours a day, which grad students and I think academics are guilty of more often than not. So because I need to do my training and I need to eat good food and I need to recover, it forces me to take a break in the middle of the day and go for a two-hour ride or whatever it might be. It does mean that sometimes, depending on what my priorities are, if I have a really key workout, I'll do that before I do any work so that I've got a fresh mind for that. Contrarily, if I have a just a base endurance type ride, but I need to get some 
really creative work done or I have a very important meeting, a presentation to give, I try to train afterwards. So just allocating mm -hmm. my mental resources um, accordingly based on what I have to do in any given day. Yep. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about your master's. Everybody always gets excited with my master's. So my master's degree and my master's thesis look at the effects of dark chocolate on cycling performance at altitude. So in a nutshell, mm. I fed people quite a lot of chocolate for two weeks, and then I stuck them in an altitude chamber. I had them cycle at a steady state for 90 minutes. And then after the 90 minutes, they went immediately into a 10 kilometer time trial. And what we found with mm -hmm. this study was there wasn't necessarily any improvements in the time trial itself, nor in any of the metabolic markers that we were looking at throughout the trial. But we did see lower lactate accumulation after the time trial. So how we interpreted mm -hmm. this was while this lower lactate accumulation may not have been um, enough to improve performance, this could show promise for different aspects of cycling where it might be a little bit punchier. So if we think super long road races where there's constant attacking and then settling down or going up a hill where you've mm -hmm. got more shorter duration that might cause lactate accumulation, potentially dark chocolate could be a functional food that would limit that sort of accumulation. And how much chocolate were you giving them? They were getting 120 grams a day for the two weeks leading up to it. So it was 60 grams in the morning, 60 grams in the afternoon or evening. And this essentially is a little bit more than a standard size chocolate bar per day. So it was not a small <laughs> amount of chocolate by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I would... and, when you, and when you say dark chocolate, what percentage? The um, stuff I was using was a 72%. So it was, as far as dark mm -hmm. chocolate goes, it was a very comfortable dark chocolate, I would say. We weren't looking at bitter chocolate or 80% or anything. So 72 tends to be what a lot of people can tolerate quite well from a taste perspective, just because it's not that bitter. Mm -hmm. And so do you practice that yourself? Do you tend to have times where you're having a fair bit of dark chocolate as part of your prep? I would say I... I, def I have a piece of ch dark chocolate with my coffee every single day. Whether or not that is specifically mm -hmm. part of my prep or just a way that I can justify it, that's in <laughs> um, I like I like chocolate, so I'll put cocoa in my oats with a little bit of maple syrup. Again, that piece, I mm -hmm. take chocolate with me everywhere so I can have chocolate with my coffee. Just one of those things that I yep. quite enjoy. The fact that it may yep. benefit me from a sporting perspective is just an added bonus. What component of the chocolate do you think is the beneficial component? Like what exactly, what, why did you choose dark chocolate specifically? So there's a few different components in dark chocolate that have the potential to be performance enhancing. So the one people might think of immediately is there is some caffeine in dark chocolate. It's not enough such that it would likely cause any performance benefits, but there is that little bit. There's also a compound called theobromine, which is in the same sort of class as caffeine, so still that little bit of a stimulant. Mm -hmm. But really, the reason we chose it and the rationale behind it was based on the uh, polyphenol content, and in particular, epicatechin. I feel like I'm pronouncing that mm -hmm. wrong in my master's defense. My external told me that I was saying wrong. Epicatechin. It's a polyphenol. It's a plant-based compound that improves the amount of nitric oxide that your body can create essentially 
And if we have more nitric oxide mm -hmm. in the body, we get a more responsive blood vessel. The blood vessels can dilate. And if the blood vessels can dilate, that means more blood, more oxygen, more nutrients can go to the muscle and waste products mm -hmm. such as carbon dioxide and lactate can be removed from the muscle. So it was really those polyphenols that were the rationale for why we chose dark chocolate. Mm -hmm. And just for a reference point, that nitric oxide effect is part of the considered to be the beneficial effect of having beet juice and green leafy veg as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, I'd always thought that it would be cool to look at a research project involving both dark chocolate and beetroot juice because beetroot juice provides mm. the nitrates, kind of the raw material, whereas dark chocolate helps with converting that nitrate into nitric oxide. So it kind of, that was one thing I thought would be cool to look at whether the two of those could have additive effects. Mm, absolutely. Oh, I can, I can feel a postdoc coming on. <laughs> That's what researchers need is more ideas and no funding. <laughs> <laughs> and so what about your PhD? You said before that your PhD has been looking more at the plant-based paradigm. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of what your PhD work's looking at? Because I know you haven't published you know, most of your work yet. It's still in the final stages of pulling together. But give us a little bit of a picture of what that looks like. Absolutely. So whereas my master's was more in a trained athlete population and performance outcomes, a lot of my PhD is more on the health side of things. So broadly speaking, my PhD is sport nutrition for special populations. And in my world, that means female athletes, Paralympic athletes, or para-athletes in general, and master's level mm -hmm. or older athletes. And my the first study out of my PhD is actually, I just got heard back from the journal, just minor revision. So I'm hoping to resubmit that this weekend. But what my research looks at mm. is a field P that has been bred specifically to be low in anti-nutrients, specifically phytic acid. And what this means is that in theory, our body should actually be able to absorb and utilize some of the micronutrients a little bit more efficiently than in the raw product. So we've taken the specially bred field peas turn them into a high protein powder. So it's a protein concentrate as opposed to an isolate. So it's about 50% carbs, 50% protein. And we are looking at how it might benefit the iron status. I have one study looking at it in female runners. That is the study that I'm mm -hmm. hoping to resubmit for publication this weekend. I'm looking at another one in people with spinal cord injuries. So that's one of the studies I'm looking at at the moment. And then, so a lot, um, I'm also looking, one of the studies in my PhD is going to be just the general dietary intake in para-athletes because there's a little bit of research out there, but not a whole lot. So just trying to build the case for what these athletes are typically consuming mm -hmm. and then based on potential shortcomings or insufficiencies in different nutrients, how biofortified plant-based foods might help to um, hit those nutrient targets. Mm. Awesome. And so, you know, as you said, there's a little bit of work that's been done in dietary intake of Paralympic athletes, but most of it's been focused on athletes with spinal cord injuries. So have you taken a wider perspective in terms of para-athletes? That is one of the big things that is tough in para-sport because there is such a wide variety of classifiable impairments and all of those classifiable impairments mm -hmm. have very different pathophysiologies. So my work on dietary intake in particular is 
specific to the paracycling population, which I think is really beneficial insofar as the populations that we can reach because we definitely have individuals with spinal cord injuries. But because cycling is a sport where almost any impairment is classifiable, we have people with visual impairments, we have people with brain injuries or degenerative diseases, spinal cord injuries. There is a wide variety of um, different impairments. And then just the way the classification system works it's a little bit easier then to look at how the dietary intake might differ between a male visually impaired athlete as opposed to a female high level spinal cord injury, which would correlate to a lower level cycling class and how those differences might exist and whether or not we think they might be hitting their unique nutrient goals or if there's work to be done. Awesome. Oh, well, I'll look forward to seeing the outcome of that. Wow. So many, so many questions, but we've got to keep this pretty tight. So uh, let's go on to what are your recommendations for potential para-athletes, uh, someone who hasn't necessarily explored para-sport or is new to para-cycling? Any recommendations? I definitely wish I would have gotten into para-sport in general a lot earlier. I think I had a lot of trouble kind of finding myself as an athlete again after I got hurt. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think my biggest recommendation would be to try as many sports as you can, whether or not it's an official para-sport or if you can just find somebody in the community who is willing to help you adapt the sport so that you can play it. Mm -hmm. But as far as paracycling goes, I mean, I find the bike is incredible because it, it gives you so much freedom to explore mm-hmm. different parts of the world, to push your body, and it's very objective. So as a, as a scientist, I really appreciate that you can just look at the watts you're pushing mm-hmm. and are you pushing more or less watts and you can really see yourself getting better in that capacity quite quickly. So I think it's very, it's very motivating to see those improvements. So yeah, if people like any recommendations I give, I would give, I guess, would be just to try as many things as possible because there are so many para sports out there that there's got to be something that somebody enjoys. And whether you pursue it at the elite level or not, I think just having a wide variety of sports in your arsenal that you enjoy, that you, that can keep you active throughout your life is just going to improve the quality of life generally Mm. yep fantastic what about any recommendations for practitioners you've obviously worked with a sports dietitian you've obviously worked with a sport physiologist and probably you know a number of other uh, professionals any specific recommendations that you have to them in your experience of them understanding how a para-athlete works my experience with para-athletes both myself and my teammates is that we all tend to have a really, really good understanding of our bodies. What is normal, what is not, what feels good, and what doesn't feel good. So on those times when potentially training volume is a little bit high for what we can tolerate at that moment, we can usually pick up on it. So I think as far Mm -hmm. as practitioners go, just being very open to listening to what the athlete says, and I think that has been, that's been said by a lot of the para-athletes on your podcast. So I, I feel... Like I'm in good company on that recommendation, but really just knowing that even if you have two people with very similar impairments, they, how they present might be very different. And knowing that 
Mm-hmm. As a practitioner who works with parasport, your critical thinking skills are going to be much so highly developed because you're constantly having mm-hmm. to think about how things might be changing. So my dietitian and I, I'm pretty lucky because I have enough of a background knowledge that we can have a little bit more academic discussion and talk about pros and cons and what I think mm-hmm. might be working and what she thinks might work well in this situation to help with it. So yeah, just really listening to each athlete, how their body feels, what they think is working and what they think isn't. That's really going to not only build a better and stronger athlete, but also then build the relationship that you need to have any successful team. Mm, Absolutely. Well said. Thank you so much, Keely. You've got such a, I mean, I'd I'd love to tap into your brain a lot more, but, but I know that you need to keep some space in your brain for what you've got to finish, which is a, a fairly, like a significant accomplishment this year, getting your PhD in. So we're going to leave you with a bit more time, but we can't let you go without asking you what your favorite food is. I'm a sucker for a really good, like plant-based burger on a really good gluten-free bun. Again, I'm, I'm not vegetarian or <sighs> vegan, but I do like a really good plant-based burger. And have you been able to find really good gluten-free buns? Yeah, they, there's some that are really good and some that aren't so good. There's actually a local bakery here in Saskatoon where I live that it's an entirely gluten-free bakery mm-hmm. and they make delicious gluten-free buns. Oh, I think we're going to have to do a little trip. To <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even pronounce it. How do you pronounce it? Province of Saskatchewan. Sk- I live in the city of Saskatoon. Sus- Saskatoon. We're going to have to do a trip to Saskatoon to check out the gluten-free buns. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, your energy, your experience and your commitment to furthering our scientific knowledge as well as your own knowledge about your body. I wish you all the best. I presume that Paris is on the horizon and on the agenda. So we'll look forward to seeing you on the track and on the road come Paris time next year. So thank you again. Thanks so much. It's been so much fun talking with you. I find it really interesting that even though she has really good knowledge and background in nutrition, Keely is really keen to experiment with her own body and to try new ideas and concepts to help her become a better athlete. I like that adventurous spirit and inquisitive nature. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website. And if you'd like to share it with your social media, please do so. Please join us next time when we talk to Oliver Lamb Watson, who is a wheelchair fencer.